The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, our text this morning. It's Matthew chapter 5. We continue to make our way through this gospel, and we've reached verses 13 through 16. This is page 810 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. Matthew chapter 5, and verses 13 through 16. Let's worship the Lord by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and praise you for the light of your word that shines upon us. We pray that as we look into that word this morning that you might come. As we open up the pages of scripture, would you open up our hearts this morning? Come, we pray, by the power of your spirit, the same spirit by whom our crucified uh, Savior was risen from the dead and is now exalted at your right hand. Would you come to us and, and be our helper and guide us? Into your truth, Lord God, help us to think what you would have us think, to believe what you would have us to believe, and that we would be eager to, te- to obey all that you would teach us this morning. Hear us and bless us for your glory in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I think we can all appreciate the value of salt I remember years ago, once when I was a, a dinner guest, and I was sitting at the table with the host family and some other guests, and we were each served a plate. I think it was cream chicken served over rice. Well, whoever had done the cooking must have forgotten perhaps multiple ingredients, but certainly had forgotten to put any salt in that, because when we took a bite of that, that uh, meal, it was about as bland as anything we'd ever tasted. And there was an awkward moment where it seemed like only the guests were the ones noticing the problem. And we're looking at each other kind of saying, all right, which one of us is going to speak up and ask for a little bit of salt? Eventually, the, uh, the hosts also noticed, and we were able to laugh about it as we passed around the salt, probably pepper, and made that meal palatable. It's amazing the difference a little bit of salt can make. I think that's why it's valued in just about every culture in all of the world. I understand that the one exception would be the Yanomamo Indian tribe down in Brazil. It seems there's, apparently there's no salt in their diet at all. But for most of the world, people greatly value salt. And that's also true. It must be even more true of light, right? What, what culture, what people can live Without light, we're all dependent on the light provided by the sun during the day and the the moon and the stars at nighttime. That's been true from the beginning of the world and even in places like down deep in caves where there's no light from those luminaries able to penetrate. Even then, mankind has been able to benefit from the use of torches and lights 
and candles. We've always understood the value of light. Salt and light, indispensable, precious commodities indeed. And so in, as we understand that, then we see what an amazing thing it is that our Lord makes no small statement here when he, he tells his disciples in the context of this sermon on the mountain, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Our message this morning is simply that, that Jesus called his kingdom disciples, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This morning we're going to consider three things about that calling, this calling. We'll consider first the privileged status of those so-called. Secondly, we'll consider the caution against living contrary to that calling. And then lastly, we'll consider the usefulness of those so-called. So note first then, the privileged status of those so-called. I think it will be important for us as we consider this text to remember the, the immediate context. We saw last week in verses 10 through 12 how Jesus was speaking of how his disciples would face persecution. They would be reviled because they belonged to him. And yes, we saw, verse 12, that they were promised that their reward would be great in heaven, but we can imagine how it would make them feel as they're so mistreated here on earth. You'd feel pretty worthless, right? Treat someone like garbage and they're going to feel like garbage. But Jesus reminded them that as those who belong to him, even as they suffer, I would say particularly as they suffer in their identity with him, he promised them that they would be blessed. And our text then wonderfully speaks further to that, that blessed status which they enjoy as those who live for Christ, even as they suffer for Christ. Just think about those words. Think about those, those first words, that, that description, the salt of the earth. What a grand description, what a privileged status enjoyed by those who are the disciples of Christ, citizens of his kingdom. Of course, here again, as with all of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as with really with all of Matthew's gospel and the message of his gospel, that privileged status with the disciples enjoy is because of Christ himself. It is a status which is derived wholly from him. Of course that's true, right? He is, he is the blessed one. He is the God-man Messiah. He is God. If we think about the, the rich symbolism of salt in the Bible, I think it, it teaches us about the very nature of God as the, the faithful, covenant-keeping God. Israel's grain offerings were to be a reminder of this. They were to be seasoned with salt, the salt of the covenant. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, the Lord commanded them in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. We see that language again in God's Promise to, uh, to his promise to the priests, the sons of Aaron, in Numbers 18, verse 19, he, it says, All the holy contributions that the people, people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Listen to this. It is a covenant of salt, a covenant of salt before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Salt is a purifying agent. Salt is a preservative. 
And so it's fitting, I believe, that in, in connection with making covenant promises, the Lord would, would use this, I think, as something of a, a symbol of his own purity, his own unchanging character. This morning, you can be thankful that, that your God is not like a piece of chicken left out on the counter. You forget to put it in the refrigerator, and it sits there overnight, and then you have to worry about whether it's spoiled or you go away for a few days, and some of you are laughing at each other like you've done this recently. <laughs> no, your God is not like that. You can be thankful that he is, he is pure. He is forever incorruptibly holy, pure, unspoiled, undefiled. We can therefore be sure that he is a God who will never forget. He will always be faithful to keep his promises. And Israel was called to live accordingly, right? They were called to keep their vows, to keep their promises, to walk before him in covenant faithfulness. Sadly, we know, of course, that under the old covenant they failed oh so miserably. And the nation's covenant-breaking rebellion, of course, speaking of this context of persecution. Well, their, their rebellion culminated in the rejection of God himself in the person of his son, the Messiah. But praise God, of course, that that, that became the very context in which the Lord showed his greatest faithfulness to his covenant. Talk about blessing in suffering, blessing in persecution. Jesus as he was crucified, off given over to death. Jesus is the one who, who offered up that perfect sacrifice by which the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness, which, yes, endures forever and ever and ever. It was in that moment that it was most supremely magnified how wonderfully Jesus himself showed himself to be the salt of the covenant, the blessed one. Yes, the one in whom all of God's covenant promises are yes and amen. And yes, particularly as he suffered and crucified and and died for our sins. Not only in his death, but also in his his resurrection and his his ascension unto the throne of David. Judah's sin and judgment notwithstanding, God had, had made a promise that he would establish that son of David King, The Lord would establish that one son of David, the Messiah, in his kingdom forever and ever. How do we know it's true? Well, here again, God promised it with a covenant of salt. Second Chronicles 13.5 tells us that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons. Listen to this. By a covenant of salt. Of course, that's all about Jesus. Again, The the covenant of salt is fulfilled in him, but it's fulfilled also in us. We are the children of salt, as it were. What a privileged status indeed. I I use that term, children of salt, in part because I came across a quote from a Jewish rabbi this past week. It's sad, interesting, but sad that, that unbelieving Jews today, on one level, can can understand that the beautiful symbolism of the salt while missing the one of whom it is symbolic. So a Jewish rabbi wrote, quote, the term covenant of salt is indicative of the everlasting nature of the relationship between the children of salt and their Elohim Yahweh, that is God, Elohim, their God, Yahweh, the Lord. How beautiful, but how sad. It's not the... Not the Christ-rejecting Jews. We need to pray for them, pray for their salvation. It is not they, 
but it is you and I, we, we who are the followers of Jesus, his disciples, the citizens of his kingdom. We are the children of salt as we live for him. We are so even when we are hated and despised, treated like garbage in this world. Jesus reminds us we are not worthless. We are the blessed ones. We are precious to him. Where in this world do we see the evidence of God's great steadfast love and his faithfulness to keep his promises, his covenant of salt, his promise to establish his, that son of David in his kingdom forever and ever? We see that in us as we're living in obedience to him as our king. We see it in those who are the disciples of Jesus. The church, we are the kingdom. We are the salt of the earth, salt of the earth. And the light of the world. Here again, I think surely light is is something of a symbol, isn't it, of God's own truth and righteousness. All of his attributes, his, his glorious perfections. Again, his covenant faithfulness. We think about how God is symbolized by light all throughout the scripture. I was tempted to just do sort of a trace the theme everywhere, but it's too much. <clears throat> From the very beginning where God spoke and said, let there be light. And, and separated the light from the darkness until the very end when, when, when the Lord's people inherit that city where, where the Lord himself is the light. But we think about God appearing and making covenant with Abraham. We think about that great covenant ratification ceremony in Genesis chapter 15 where the Lord appeared as a smoking fire pot and as a flaming torch that light passed through those divided animals as he made his promise to Abraham. We think later about his faithfulness in keeping that promise. Even in Egypt, we think about when the Egyptians were plagued with darkness and the people of Israel enjoyed the light of God there in the land of Goshen. We think about his leading them by the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night out of Egypt, and he continued to lead them on through the wilderness and on and on and on. And even though they broke covenant, even amidst Israel's worst sin, the light of the Lord always shined. It continued to shine. It shined through his word. It shined through the promises he gave, the messianic promises. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, we read about that, that one called in righteousness whom the Lord would give as a covenant for the people. And he's described as a, a light, a light for the nations given to those sitting in darkness. God had promised that he would come and he would shine upon his people with his light and his salvation. Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world. That's stated explicitly in in the Gospel of John, but we've seen it here in Matthew's Gospel, right? We saw it in chapter 4, verse 16, that citation of, of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And here we see it again. And yes, the promise is that, yes, even as God's servants suffer, even as they are persecuted, they shine. So it was with Christ. Here again, the light of God shined most brightly against the, the, the darkest moment that the world had ever known, the death of the Son of God. Even then, even then, of course, In a sense, it was dark even for Christ. The light of God's countenance had to be removed. Jesus was given over to to wrath as he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, 
mysteriously, paradoxically, even, and I would say even especially at that, that darkest moment, he's, he was the one shining forth with that glorious obedience, bringing glory to the God of light and glory. So yes, his disciples could be sure that even when they suffer in the darkness of, of persecution on his account, even then they do so as those whose lights are shining, as the light of the world. Jesus, Jesus the high priest, the, the very one who has spoken all of these beatitudes, right, these, these blessing announcements, he's the one who never, never stops shining upon his people with an ironic bless, uh, blessing. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. We'll think more about this, this imagery of salt and light. But let's move on to our second point this morning about Jesus calling his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Consider, secondly, the caution against living contrary to that calling. Generally, we don't want to be different, do we? I mean, even apart, of, apart from ethical issues, moral differences, we don't want to stand out as those who are strange. We don't want to be counted as weirdos in this world, right? I'll never forget the, the fourth grade when I, I had come home from school and I'd put these holes on the knees of my tan corduroys and my, my, my domestically skilled and thrifty mother, she had the solution for that. She got out her sewing machine and she sewed and put great big brown patches on those tan corduroys. Uh, good as new, Right. Uh, somehow she never thought I'd have any problem going to school and being the only kid in my class with big brown patches on my knees. I think she, she talked me into trying it and, uh, by promising me I'll give you a dollar for every person, that, every kid that makes fun of you in school. And so fine, I went and I wore it. It was not a, a happy experience. I don't think I made her pay me the money, but I did talk her into making, never making me wear those pants to school again. We don't like to be different. We, we, we don't even like to be different, and, and we certainly don't want to be persecuted uh, for being different. Truthfully, not even on account of Christ and his righteousness and, and for the sake of his kingdom do we relish the idea of, of being made fun of and being made uncomfortable and even being persecuted in different ways. And, and you know, we can avoid that, right? Very easily. All we have to do is simply stop being different. All we have to do is hide the fact that we belong to Christ. Isn't that what Peter did after Jesus was arrested, right? He was following in some sense, but certainly did not want to be persecuted as a follower of Christ, so he simply denied him. He denied emphatically that he even knew Christ, and it worked. worked like a charm. They left him alone. But of course we know that as Peter's own bitter tears that that was not, not the right way, that was not the path of true discipleship. To, de- to be a disciple of Christ while not owning him, not following him, not being like Christ, well, well that's as contradictory as, as salt that's not salty, right? Salt losing its saltiness. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms. Jesus says in verse 13, if, if, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. One commentator points out that 
that salt in the ancient world was typically was not pure sodium chloride. Salt that you would collect, for example, around the Dead Sea, it contained a mixture of other minerals, and so the true salt content could easily be washed away, leaving a, a useless residue. And I think this is a, a warning, a warning against thinking that you continue you can continue living as a disciple of Christ while no longer living contrary to the world that is contrary to Christ. Clearly, it's utter folly. In fact, that verb translated lost its taste can even be translated becomes foolish. Of course, the same would be true of, of taking light and hiding the light, right? It defeats the purpose. We see in verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. When we, when we think about this word of caution, I think we can see it as a warning against making the same mistake that Israel made, the covenant nation. Isn't that true? Think about Israel. They were, they were called to be as salt and as light, called to be that, that holy nation, called to be that, that city on a hill, as it were. I think of the, Solomon, of the uh, temple which Solomon built on Mount Moriah. It was something of a, a symbol of Israel's holy calling. They were to be set apart unto the Lord as his followers. And at times there were those who, who started so well, started out so well in so being, but they did not always finish so well, did they? We think about Solomon, how in his, his early days we're told that he, he loved the Lord and he walked in the statutes of David, his father. What happened? His, his maybe end of the life repentance notwithstanding, I think what we can say that, that what happened in so many cases is, is that the salt lost its saltiness. So it was ultimately with the nation, the nations, uh, Israel and Judah. They became just like the nations that, they, that did not know the Lord. And in that sense, they became useless. And the warning here is not to go down that same path. Such is not the path of discipleship in the kingdom of Christ. Of course, ultimately, the only hope this morning is that we will not go down that path, is that we belong to him, that that, that we're united to Jesus. Remember again our union with Christ and his spirit in us. It's in Christ that, that we are not like Israel breaking covenant under the old covenant. No, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the faithful one. And we are in him. Jesus fulfilled that perfect obedience in his suffer- even in his suffering. And those who belong to Christ truly will do the same as we walk by the Spirit in union with G- Jesus. But the, but the, the encouragement then is that in, in so doing, if we're looked down upon uh, by the world, when the world treats us as, as refuse, there might be that temptation to, to, to compromise to conform to the standard of the world, to lose your saltiness, to hide your light. Note the irony. You don't want to be counted as useless by a world that hates Christ, but what a danger that in in forsaking Christ, you might lose your saltiness and become truly, spiritually useless. And I think on one level, this warning comes to that one who would stop completely living as a disciple, the one who, who forsakes the way of righteousness, forsakes the way of Christ, the one who is 
no different than the world at all. I think this is a, a person whose soul is in grave danger because it may be indicative of the complete absence of true saving faith. This is the person who is not truly in the kingdom. The New Testament warnings come to mind. Think of Galatians 5.21 where Paul gives that warning about those who are given over to the works of the flesh and he warns that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 which says, for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Friend, if if you're deceived this morning that way, if you're deceived into thinking that you can be a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven while having no interest in living a different life, living in obedience to Christ, living as salt and as light, but being just completely like the world. Be warned this morning that that is not true salvation. And the Lord would come and speak to you and command you this morning to repent, to repent of such thinking and to turn to him, the Lord Jesus, in truth. Trust him. Trust his, his precious blood on, shed on the cross for sinners like you to wash away all of your sins, even the sin of, of following a false gospel that would say, I don't have to be any different than the world to belong to the Lord. Trust him this morning. Trust him to lead you on the true path of kingdom discipleship. And now you may hear that warning this morning and you say, well, what about me, pastor? I don't, I don't think I'm in that category. I, I think I'm a true Christian, but I know that I'm not living that holy life that I ought to live. Well, the point here is not to make the true believer doubt his or her salvation this morning. The truth is that none of us have perfectly lived according to that calling to be salt and light. We all come to the Lord this morning as sinners in need of his grace. And these warnings are also designed to help even struggling Christians. These warnings are even for the most faithful Christians. God has given these to us as a a means of preserving us in Christ, preserving us in our walk on the path of true discipleship. Uh, preserving us and even moving us unto greater faithfulness. Wherever we have wandered, may God this morning lead us back unto himself and to greater faithfulness as his disciples. To walk as true children of light as we are. That Ephesians 5 text I just cited goes on to say a few verses later in verses 8 and 9. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light In the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. See, that is the path to which God has called us and calling us into the light of his kingdom. And to what end has God so called us? Well, that brings us to our last point this morning. Our last point about this calling to be light, to to be salt and light we see, lastly, the usefulness of those so called. You know, since salt is a, a, a purifying and a preserving agent, this, this text and its use 
uh, of the salt imagery has sometimes been interpreted, interpreted to speak to the way that, that Christians, the church, are called to have a preserving impact on the world. We're, we're to keep the world from becoming too evil, right? From, from sliding into moral degradation. Or more than that, that we are to have a, actually to have a transforming impact on the world. We're to transform the culture around us. There's, there's debate in the church, in the church broadly speaking, and even in our own circles about whether and to what extent that's the case, that we'll be preserving the world and so forth. And what exactly does that, does that look like? My guess is that some of the differences in perspective out there, what might be reflected even among us who are sitting here this morning, rather than highlight the difference between differences, I, I'd like to focus on things we, we can all uh, agree on. I, th- I would think that, that we would all agree that as we live in this world as salt and light, that certainly we should desire and expect to have some, some moral influence or influence for moral Good, even among those who are not converted, those who are not Christians. Of course, we know that, that even among unbelievers, God is gracious. He works by his common grace, and certainly God is, is pleased, will be pleased to use our faithful witness to, to, the, to his, uh, serve the interests of such common grace. I think also we can all agree that we ought to be careful not to go too far with this, a couple of years back in one of our presbytery meetings, the, the sermon came from one of our fellow ministers, and he preached on the very text that's, which is before us this morning, and at least for me, it, it provided a helpful word of, of caution in this regard. He pointed out that the early church was never promised that by living as faithful Christians, they were going to save Roman civilization, nor have we been promised that we're going to save ours either. And in one sense, to to think that we are called to do so is to set ourselves up for disappointment. It's bound to make us think that the evil in the world around us must because of our unfaithfulness. Is some great evidence that we are failing in our mission. I think it's helpful, again, to remember the context. Verses 10 and 12 here, we see what Jesus coming to his disciples, encouraging these ones who are suffering persecution, encouraging them as they were living in an evil world, living in a world which, was, which hated Christ and was, would persecute them, ridicule him because they belonged to Christ. And clearly Jesus had no intention of coming to such maligned and mistreated disciples and rebuke them, in a sense, by saying, look, it's your fault. If you were being salt and light and having that transforming effect on the culture, then you wouldn't be persecuted the way you are. Jesus, of course, wasn't doing that. He was saying even as you are being hated and persecuted, you are blessed. And this minister rightly, I think, pointed out we're, we're not to measure the faithfulness of the church by the moral state of the surrounding culture. But we are to continue even against the greatest evil boldly, faithfully to continue to shine, to continue to be salty. And we're to do so in hope. We don't, we don't resign ourselves to the fact that the world is just going to, to hell in a handbasket, and so we might as well just retreat and run off and hide. No, of course, as we're faithful, of course we should 
expect that by God's grace we will have an influence for good and we praise God when we are able to do so? Will America just becoming, be, continue becoming more and more evil, going down that same wicked path until Christ returns? I don't think we can know for sure. I tend to think there will be a measure of revival, and of course, that will have an impact on society when people come to Christ. But we do well, well to remind ourselves this morning of the fact that that, uh, an improved America, that's not the ultimate blessed hope. Just think this morning about what is the blessed hope. The blessedest hope is seeing Christ. We have a Savior who will return from heaven in glory, and he will come as the light of the world, and he will shine with such radiant beauty, and we will be like him. We will shine, shine even like the brightness of the sky, the Bible teaches. We will, we will be as the stars in the sky forever and ever as we enjoy his presence, the, the, the presence of the light of his glory. That will be most, most marvelous. That will not be bland. <laughs> we will taste taste of the salty goodness of our God as the sons and daughters of the kingdom. It's in that, at that point that we will be most salty in a sense, right? But our text this morning is, is not, or certainly not, not, not primarily about what we will be. We're being told that, that we are salt and light now. By the way, the, the, the you are is plural there, and so we need to remember that this is a reference to the people of God corporately, the church. Here, the church, uh, we are the kingdom. We together are salt and light now. The emphasis is not on what, what the world will become as a result of our influence. The emphasis is on what we are like in contrast with the world as we continue to live in this world and, but, but this is important, I think this is kind of the key, and how God will use us to bring others out of the kingdom of darkness and in, into his kingdom to join us as the children of the salt and light. So it's not so much that, that as we're, we're sprinkled here and there, we just make the world a little bit a little bit of a better place, a bit more palatable, the way that some salt and pepper were able to make that tasteless meal more palatable as I was served it so many years ago. It is to the end that by our salty witness, there will be those, there will be those among this world who will taste of the goodness of God. They will taste of that kingdom through us. By our witness, they'll taste of the kingdom into which God invites them, and they will come, and they will enter in. God has made us to be light to the end, that by our good works shining forth even amidst the darkness, people of this world might see the light of the kingdom and be drawn to it and desire to enter in, and they'll come, and they'll join us. They'll join us in our kingdom worship, giving glory to the Father, to our Father in heaven. Is that not a glorious purpose for which Christ has, has called us and made us to be salt and light? Dear Christians, never allow the greatness of the evil, never allow the darkness to, to make us doubt the, the grace of Christ, the power of Christ to call sinners out of their darkness and into his kingdom. 
So long as the world continues, however dark it is, it continues because God is a saving God and he is saving sinners and his salt and light. We are his useful servants in that great work. See, that, that, that is huge and what ought to motivate us then to go forth and to shine, to be salty with the very saltiness of the kingdom of which Christ has made us to be citizens. Think about it. We, we live in this dark world. So much hatred, enmity, strife, bitterness. How shall we then live? Well, Jesus has taught us. He's been teaching us in this very sermon. We are to be those who are meek. We are to be merciful. We are to be peacemaking. We are to be pure in heart. We are to be salty. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We're to speak in, in, in such a way, speak and live and have a presence, living in such a way that the, that the world will, will taste, taste of the flavor of grace, of forgiveness, of eternal life. As my brother in our presbytery said, the church is where the salt of the kingdom is to be found, the taste of heaven, its righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is who we are. That's why when when Christ comes again and brings his kingdom in light and glory, it's not going to overtake us as some unexpected thing. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 7. He said, but you are not in darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's a call, a call to be salt, a call to shine, to shine with the very radiance and glory of the kingdom that Christ is bringing to us, the radiant, the radiant beams of the, uh, the kingdom of light and glory are already shining upon us, and they are to be reflected in the way in which we live. Let's go forth then. Let's go forth and shine and shine to the end that, that the world might see, might see the glory, the light of our God, and that they, that may, they might turn to him. Let us, by our good works, by our good living, by living as the salt of the earth, shine and show forth the goodness of God, that they might come and glorify our Father who is in heaven. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would indeed be the salt and light that you've called us to be and that you would use your word this day to work by your grace and accomplish that in us, your people. Forgive us, Lord God, for any and every way in which we've been unfaithful, where we've failed to to live as salt and light. Strengthen our faith this day. Increase our love, we pray. By your spirit, would you work in our hearts, cause those hearts to be broken, yes, afresh, unto our Savior this day, and indeed broken to the world around us, those who are in such desperate need of the grace of Christ. Grant that more fully, Lord God, we might embrace and live according to what you have called us to be in him. Help us, yes, to live as salt and light, that your great name would be glorified. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.